Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters podcast, a series of candid conversations with leading experts about how individuals and organizations can grow and protect their finances, tailored around current events and trends. Here's your host for today's podcast, Brian Peterangelo. Welcome to the Key Wealth Matters weekly podcast, where we casually ramble on about important topics, including the markets, the economy, human ingenuity, and almost anything under the sun, giving you the keys to unlock the mysteries of the markets and investing. It's Friday, February 4th, 2022. I'm Brian Peterangelo. And with me today, we have three of our gold medal caliber investment experts, George Mateo, our chief investment officer, Steve Haight, head of equities, Rajiv Sharma, head of fixed income. As a reminder, a lot of great content is available on key.com slash wealth insights, including updates from our Wealth Institute on many different subjects, and especially our key questions article series, addressing a relevant topic for investors each Wednesday. Well, gentlemen, as always, thanks for joining us for another session of our weekly podcast. And there's been a ton of data that came out economically. We'll cover that in a minute. But first, let's go over Groundhog Day where uh, Punxsutawney Phil has predicted six more weeks of winter, but at the end, maybe he's predicting six more weeks of market volatility or more. Steve, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's 108 times now that Punxsutawney Phil has predicted more winter, which is the safest pick when you're in mid-February or early February, isn't it? So, you know, not a great surprise there. I do have to admit, though, it's one of my favorite days of the year. I love the, the catch. But, you know, more volatility sure does look untapped to us here. Uh, we're back retesting the 200-day moving averages. We look at the market today. Uh, we've seen bearish sentiment uh, skyrocket. So we've got uh, fuel for both the bulls and the bears right now. Um, and we have a two-way market for, you know, the first time in probably a good year and a half. So um, more volatility ahead to be sure. Looking to some of the economic data that came out, especially this morning regarding jobs, we've got a pretty favorable number in terms of the report of 467,000 plus revisions from prior month, in addition to the labor force participation rate. George, you've, uh, you've looked at a lot of these numbers. What are your thoughts in terms of the strength of the economy due to the jobs reports, as well as some of the other data that you're looking at with the forecast for the Fed? Well, the employment report just really blew the doors off. I think a lot of people were thinking that We'd have some weakness associated with Omicron and, and there, to be clear, are certainly a lot of people that are not able to get to work uh, because maybe they might be sick or they're caring for somebody in their family who's sick. But the numbers really would suggest that. Um, as you mentioned, Brian, um, numbers were really strong with revisions from the prior month. So sometimes they do a bit of a catch up and it's, it's just amazing to see these numbers. I think they're close to 700,000 or so uh, jobs, which is really, um, remarkable strength for sure. Uh, wages, as you mentioned, accelerated uh, as well. I think they're up some five and a half percent year over year. Um, the labor force actually increased a lot. And so you have more people coming back into the labor market as well. Um, I'll suggest that again, I think this is kind of a new era of, of you know robust growth and, and along with it, higher inflation as well. So we're still a couple million short in terms of where the overall employment uh, situation was prior to the pandemic. So it's been you know, two years now, and we're still kind of below where we were just prior to that. But by all accounts, it seems like the uh, employment situation is really quite robust, and it's staying that way. And I think it's going to continue for a while. Um, there's still a backlog of demand for more labor supply in many parts of the economy. And uh, for that reason alone, I think you're going to continue to see wage pressures 
rise a bit. Uh, you're going to continue to see really strong inflation numbers. I think we're going to get key inflation numbers next week. So by this time next week, we'll have another report from uh, the Consumer Price Index. Uh, last time we, we, uh, we talked about that, it was 7% year over year. Uh, historically, it's been in the 3% range. So we're kind of two, two to two and a half times higher than where we normally are. And, uh, and that's going to continue to probably look a little bit hot as we see it. So inflation is definitely here. And that really puts the Fed uh, and central banks in the spotlight. So I think it's probably really important to kind of think about what the Fed is thinking. And with today's report, it seems like we've now got a chance that the Fed might be even more aggressive than uh, once thought. So I think that's starting to kind of price its way through the markets. But Rajiv, what are you what are you seeing in fixed income right now? Well, I agree, Georgia. <clears throat> that jobs number came in very hot this morning. Uh, we saw yields surge six basis points in the 10-year. We hit 190 this morning. That's the highest uh, that we've been in two years. And there is that bigger probability now that uh, the Fed could do a 50 basis point hike in March. Um, we see the two-year, which is very influenced by Fed policy, around 1.3%. Really big moves there in the front end. Uh, everything you said is absolutely true as far as the jobs number goes. Um, despite all the COVID-19 cases and business closures, that kind of number that we saw today puts the pressure on the Fed uh, to raise interest rates. Um, and I think that's going to be reinforcing, uh, this number reinforces uh, Powell's characterization of the labor market uh, that he said in his press conference, uh, that it's strong. And the intention is really to raise rates come March to tackle inflation. Uh, if you just look at the Israel's labor participation rate, uh, it's increased to 62.2%. And so these are all very strong numbers. It points towards tighter monetary policy. So do we see a 50 basis point hike or do we see a 25 basis point hike in March? I still think we're gonna see 25 basis points, but the odds of the 50 basis points jumped this morning. We were at around 23% odds of a 50 basis point hike in March and now we're at 34%. So that's still on the table. It's gonna be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, I don't think the Fed, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me. Maybe uh, maybe you do, Rajiv, or Brian, you've talked about this too from time to time. The odds or maybe the, the frequency with which the Fed has actually moved more aggressively. In other words, they've been in this kind of typical incremental policy changes where they raise interest rates by 25 basis points, um, typically in a, in a tightening cycle. Tightening cycle. You, you acknowledge that maybe they would do a bit more, maybe 50 basis points. Do you know how many times they've actually done that in the past? I think it's pretty small, right? Yeah, I don't believe they've done it for the last 22 years. So it's, it's over 20 years where they actually were, were doing that and kind of causing rates to move up more quickly than people thought. So that's kind of interesting. I think, it, again, it is, it is interesting that we're even having the conversation that they might need to do that. Um, but then again, beyond that, I still think there's a lot of uncertainty with how much, how much tightening they need to actually put forth this year. And when we spoke last, I think the, the numbers that we heard were well, I guess we started the year thinking that, that they might raise rates three or four times, maybe five, but we were kind of, I think, around the three to four range. Uh, the consensus now has moved up to maybe closer to five. And there's, again, people um, on the street that suggest that rates need to be raised as much as seven times this year. Have you, um, have you altered your forecast or your outlook for, um, for the overall year, Rajiv? No, we're still uh, maintaining our forecast for hikes this year. Um, I think that's the camp that we're in. And, uh, and Looking at the 10-year, probably ending the year around 225 to 250, we're still sticking to that. And so I know you've said about a few things about this too, Steve, where you think maybe the Fed might be, you know, kind of prone to do a few things early in the year and then pause a little bit. Is that still your, your outlook as well? 
Yeah, you know, I think that they know they're behind the curve and they have to go aggressively, but I, I don't know that we aren't going to get a pause because of the way that this balance sheet runoff is being integrated into their thought process. You know, the last time they ran the balance sheet off was in late 2018. The market had all kinds of problems. And keep in mind, during that time period, we had the uh, the tariff situation that was going on from the Trump administration with China. So um, I think that market participants really don't have a clear read on the impact of balance sheet contraction or quantitative tightening, QT. Um, and I don't know that the Fed really thinks that it has a great handle on what the impact is too. So, you know, I think that we're likely going to see some type of of pause why they start that process so that they can get an assessment of what the market impact is of QT, irrespective of hiking rates at the exact same time. That phrase you you uh, just used, clear read, I think is is really telling. I don't think anybody has a real clear read. And just looking this week, Rajiv, you were nice enough to update this, uh, this chart that we showed from time to time uh, that showed just the forecast for inflation at the end of this year. So Again, if you think of where inflation is right now, we mentioned it's around 7% or so measured by CPI, and we'll probably tick higher a little bit when we get the reading next week. But then in terms of what people think might happen for the rest of the year, the range is enormous. I mean, there's just so much uncertainty right now. Um, there are some people that think inflation will fall back close to 1% or even maybe a little bit below 1%. Uh, and then there are people that still think inflation is going to be stuck at you know 5 or 6%. Um, and that that dispersion is, is just enormous in terms of trying to think about where the economy is heading. So I think it's going to be a lot of uncertainty and your point earlier, Brian, a lot of volatility. In terms of dispersion, though, uh, and thinking about widening of, of outcomes, you know, there were a couple of stocks in the news uh, this week. We don't have to name names necessarily, but a couple of really high profile companies that historically traded in lockstep with each other and were all kind of clustered together as kind of a unified group, it seemed like. You know, some of those divergences really started to emerge this week, where a few companies who missed earnings or reported weak results uh, saw their stocks just get hammered, uh, obliterated almost. And then there were a couple of companies that actually pro provided some upside surprises. So to me, Steve, it seems like we're kind of in a market environment where the micro matters uh, as much as the macro. What do you think about that? Yeah, you know, I think that there's a couple points there. First, you know, when you look at the earnings season that we've had, um, there's been a definite difference between the winners and losers. So companies that are beating on both revenue and EPS are outperforming the market uh, by 70 basis points on those days. And ones that miss are, are clearly underperforming uh, by uh, minus one and a half percent. However, if you look historically, those returns are muted compared to what they've been uh, in the past, uh, the average return for companies that both beat is plus 1.8%, and the, the ones that miss, uh, it's minus 3.1. So, you know, while we've had a really huge moves in some of these mega cap tech names, uh, in particular, the rest of the, the earnings beat and miss cycle this quarter has been incredibly muted um, while we are seeing that, that bifurcation between winners and losers. Um, you know, when you look at the mega cap tech names, I think for a while now, uh, there's been this attitude in the market uh, from investment managers managing their own career risk as opposed to trying to manage to make money because you, it, it's like you can't get fired for owning those names, right? Well, you know what? You can get fired for owning those names now. Um, 
because there's huge performance gaps between the two uh, or between two or three of them um, in particular. Uh, you know, we, we think that, that that is likely to persist. There are differences between these companies um, and uh, differences in their business models. And you just can't, uh, you just can't en masse buy all of them uh, and, and profit anymore. Um, it's definitely moved to being a, a stock picker's market if it's not always been a stock picker's market, George. Well said, Steve. Well said. And I, I think that that does speak to the fact that despite there's a despite the fact that there's a lot of volatility overriding the macro environment, there's certainly a lot of things to do at the micro level in terms of actually how you express views in a portfolio, how you gain exposures. And what we've been saying for quite some time, I think, um, remains the case, which is maybe you want to de-emphasize some of the really mega cap heavy exposure uh, and be more selective around how you actually build an equity portfolio to your point, Steve, around trying to discern winners versus losers and companies that have really durable businesses versus those that might be a little bit more fragile or uh, susceptible to um, competition. Uh, but at the fixed income level, Rajiv, moving over to you, there's been a lot of movements uh, as well with inside fixed income. Uh, we haven't heard much from the, um, the muni market of late. So what's been happening in munis these days? Well, finally, we're starting to see muni yields start to rise. I mean, uh, for the last year or so, uh, we've been saying that munis are not very attractive with the yields that they were at. And we finally see munis look a little more attractive this year with this move in rates. Uh, Treasury yields, as you know, rose across the curve. Uh, but with that movement, mostly was concentrated in the front end. Same thing with muni yields. Uh, they've also risen almost 31 basis points in the front end. So munis in the front end looked attractive. Um, and I think that there's going to continue to find some interest in munis. Uh, right now, you're seeing bank and insurance companies, they're finding some value, they're finding tax exempts to be compelling. Uh, they've come in and they started buying munis. Uh, and I think the equivalent uh, tax advantage on, on munis for 30 years around 3% for AA bonds. So I think there is attraction there. And I think you see uh, banks and property casualty buyers stepping in. Uh, we also see uh, muni new issuance start to pick up a little bit too. January is generally a lighter month for muni issuance. Now we expect next week around 9.2 billion uh, to be issued in the five-year space of munis. And we think uh, tax exempt supply should be around 7.8 billion. So there's gonna be more muni interest, I think, with the yields where they are now for a very long time. Um, investors are getting a little more excited about munis now. And in terms of investors getting excited about fixed income, are people getting excited about the state of the credit markets? We've talked about that from time to time with these calls too, Rajiv, where the credit markets can somewhat be and really tell in terms of the outlook for the economy. So uh, what do you see in the credit markets more specifically today? Uh, spreads have been very contained. I mean, it's very interesting with all this movement in, uh, in this recent equity volatility, uh, you would expect that perhaps spreads would also start to see some wider levels now, but we haven't seen that. We came into this year with spreads at uh, tight levels. Uh, we came into this year with almost 140 billion in new issue supply in January for investment grade credit. And it still really didn't move spreads out uh, to levels that would be uncomfortable for their credit markets. Uh, the credit markets right now are focused on what the Fed's going to do, what the policy statement's going to be in March. Is this finally going to put an end to where we are in the credit cycle? We're, we're very late in the credit cycle. We've been late in the credit cycle for a while now. And will this move finally put an end to that? In other words, will, will issuers decide that, okay, rates are higher now. We don't need to come to market too often anymore. We've already raised as much cash as we could with low rates. Perhaps we'll cool that down a little bit. If the new issue story cools down, you could see uh, spreads move tighter. Uh, generally in a market where you see higher yields, you expect tighter spreads. 
Uh, this is a very different market because of the volatility that we're seeing in the market. We've got a Fed in action. We've got equity volatility. Uh, history points to credit spreads not being able to tighten against equity volatility. And spread tightening could happen if that new supply story slows down or foreign investors get involved with the uh, with the credit markets, the US credit markets. Yields look at, uh, attractive right now and you could see foreign investors start to come in, which could also bring spreads tighter. You know, George, we haven't talked about it in a number of weeks for good reason, but maybe we can close out with a recap on where you see COVID and Omicron going since it's a positive story. Yeah, to, to be sure, it is a positive story, although I'm sure there are a lot of people that are unfortunately still affected by this in a very personal way. And there obviously is a, a state of health concern, a concern for healthcare in general. But uh, in terms of what's driving the market, it does seem as if the, the Omicron situation has uh, has receded to the, uh, the back pages. The cases in uh, that get reported have actually fallen tremendously. So we saw a spike in early January of some, gosh, I think it was close to almost a million cases per day. The numbers when I last looked were well, well below 400,000. So we've kind of collapsed that by more than half in just um, you know, call it a month's time or so. And again, there's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things we don't know, um, but it does seem like from what the market's trying to digest, uh, Omicron is, uh, is less of a risk right now. Of course, that could change any minute, I guess, if we've been proven wrong. Um, but it does seem as if this is the story around Omicron is fading. In this, uh, in this Friday's job report, there were a, a large number of people, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, hadn't been able to get to work because of uh, healthcare concerns, whether, again, they're affected personally or some of their family is and they're caring for that person uh, that's preventing them from getting to work. So I, I still think that if these trends continue and these, these cases continue to recede, as we hope and think they will, uh, again, maybe that augurs for some more support in the labor market, which could relieve some of those inflationary pressures. But We'll have to see how that plays out. But as you mentioned, Brian, a lot of good news there on the, um, the, the COVID side. Um, I think vaccinations are actually increasing a little bit at a, at a small but, but higher rate. And so overall, it seems like from the healthcare perspective, in terms of its bleed through the, the economy, uh, those seem to be abating. And we'll have to keep, we hope to keep our fingers crossed, uh, crossed to see how that plays out going forward. So thanks to our listeners for joining us today. And be sure to subscribe to the Key Wealth Matters podcast through your favorite podcast app. As always, past performance is no guarantee of future results, and we know your financial situation is personal to you. So reach out to your relationship manager, portfolio strategist, or advisor for more information. We'll catch up with you next week to see how the world and the markets have changed and provide those keys to help you achieve your financial success. The Key Wealth Matters podcast is produced by the Key Wealth Institute. The Key Wealth Institute is comprised of a collection of financial professionals representing key entities, including key private bank, key bank institutional advisors, and key investment services. Any opinions, projections, or recommendations contained herein are subject to change without notice and are not intended as individual investment advice. This material is presented for informational purposes only and should not be construed as individual tax or financial advice. Bank and trust products are offered by Key Bank National Association, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Key Bank Private Bank and Key Bank Institutional Advisors are part of Key Bank. Investment products, brokerage, and investment advisory services are offered through Key Investment Services, LLC, or KISS, member FINRA, SIPC, and SEC Registered Investment Advisor. Insurance products are offered through Key Corp Insurance Agency USA, or KIA. KIS and KIA are affiliated with Key Bank. Investment and insurance products are not FDIC insured, not bank guaranteed, may lose value, not a deposit, not insured by any federal or state government agency. 
KeyBank and its affiliates do not provide tax or legal advice. Individuals should consult their personal tax advisor before making any tax-related investment decisions. This content is copyrighted by KeyCorp 2021.